Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Tonight, we continue to provide health information with one of our viewers' favorite shows, Ask Anything. Tonight, On Call with the Prairie Duck. Good evening, and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Duck, medical information based on science, built on trust. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, your Prairie Duck host tonight. Thank you for joining us. Tonight's topic is one of our viewers' favorite, Ask Anything. During this episode, we will be answering viewer questions about any medical topic. Joining us in the studio are Dr. Benjamin Myrink from Avera Medical Group, 69th and Cliff, and Dr. Laura Hofert from Madison Regional Health System. Thank you for joining us, Ben, Laura. Dr. Hofert, tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Laura Hofert. I work in Madison, South Dakota at Madison Regional Health System Critical Access Hospital there. I'm a family medicine physician and I also do obstetrics. I grew up in a small town, Salem, Montrose area, and then subsequently went and did my undergrad at the University of South Dakota. And I stayed there for my medical school and then did my residency in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I knew I wanted to end up in a smaller town, so I subsequently moved to Madison. I've been there now for about eight years practicing. Eight years now. Yeah, it's going by fast. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Dr. Myrick? Like Laura, I also grew up in a small town in South Dakota, so I grew up between Platte and Geddes on a farm, and then did my undergrad at SDSU, med school at USD, and then knew I wanted to do primary care, so I went and did family medicine for residency at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and then I came back, and I've been with Avera now for three, four years, which has been great. I'm in Sioux Falls. And I also do a lot with the medical school and the state medical association uh, as well. So we've got two or three South Dakotans from birth <laughs> and a coyote and a jackrabbit and a Viking. So this should be, should be fun, should yes. be fun. Yes. Tonight we invite you, our audience, to submit or call in with your medical questions. Your name will remain anonymous. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call one 888 376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or message us on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible during this episode. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for the newest Prairie Doc publication. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. Well, we've got a question already, and I think this is very pertinent. I, this, e uh, this email question says, I've had several respiratory viruses this year when other years I have not had that many. Has there been a lot of extra things going around this season, or are people more susceptible since COVID? What would you say to that, Laura? 
I think probably people are noticing that now that we're moving out, we're getting out of our homes again, we aren't wearing the mask like we used to, that people are finally getting exposed to some of those things. I know myself personally, I didn't have a cough for about two years wearing masks during COVID, and now certainly I've had a couple of colds this last year as well, and I think it's related to that lack of exposure and now kind of getting everything head on. Yeah, I mean, and we're building up our immunity again now. Correct. We, we kind of took some time off from some of those things for mm -hmm. a while. What are some of the things we're seeing, Ben? Well, the last few weeks in my clinic, influenza has been very prevalent. It seems like in Sioux Falls, especially a lot of the younger kids, schools, daycares, that's kind of been the main thing going around. We still see COVID, we still see RSV. Um, now, most get better within a few days, over-the-counter care, some, sometimes we do prescription medications. The one thing I will say is almost over 90% of my patients who have had influenza were not vaccinated, so I still really am impressed with the influenza vaccine and would just say it's still not too late to get it. I think we're still in the midst of respiratory season, so we're nowhere near the end of this. Uh, so if you haven't got the flu shot, this is a good plug to, to put in for that. You know, both influenza and COVID, we do have some medication to help with the symptoms or help get over it faster, but you kind of need it early in the course. Um, what are some reasons you might recommend someone to come in early on in the course to, to think about getting treatment? Yeah, so definitely if you are a person who's more high risk, if you've got some underlying medical issues, whether that be type 2 diabetes, congestive heart failure, COPD, you're going to be higher risk for both influenza and COVID. And those patients we do recommend, especially for COVID, we kind of have that five-day window of where we want to get those antivirals started. Uh, and for influenza, it's even shorter. It's 48 hours ideally to really get those medications started uh, in order to hopefully prevent complications. Yeah, and I might add, you know, if someone lives with someone who's high risk, that be, might be a consideration or reason, reason too. Um, another question here, I used to be a blood donor, now I'm getting iron infusions. I've seen my primary care and two hematologists. I've had scopes to rule internal bleeding, we tried iron pills, but they did nothing. None of the doctors could give me answer as to why now this is happening. So they, they used to be a donor, now they're getting iron infusions, they're having trouble, I, I think, keeping their numbers up. You know, what are some of the possible causes sometimes that they want to look into, Ben? So we actually see iron deficiency a lot. I, I probably have a patient I put on an iron infusion once a week, once every other week, so I actually use them quite a bit, and they are very uh, powerful and work extremely well for people like this patient. However, sometimes we don't figure out the cause of, the, of anemia. Um, Often we look like they did, they, they mentioned scopes. We look in the GI tract to see if there's a small bleed going on. Sometimes we'll run some extra labs to see if there's other, some blood disorder, something like that going on. Rarely is it a nutritional deficiency in the United States. Iron deficiency from a nutritional deficiency is quite rare. Um, but sometimes too, uh, if women have heavy, heavy bleeding from their periods or whatever, that can be a cause as well. So we try and figure out the underlying cause for not just putting a band-aid on the problem, but sometimes it's like this patient who has seen multiple physicians where we just don't find a cause. Now their question about being a blood donor, that they're going to have to work out individually because it's going to be dependent on their labs and values and things like that, so I don't think we can give them an answer on that. Um, but most patients who do iron infusions can do quite well on them and not have any issues for quite some time, so they, they do work quite well for most patients. And I think I'm also seeing more people that just have trouble absorbing iron mm -hmm. even. So even those iron pills that people are taking, they just simply aren't absorbing them well. That could be w related to their diet if they're having a high dairy intake at the time of that they're eating their iron, 
or even if they're taking medications that reduce their stomach acid. Like we're seeing a lot more use of those proton pump inhibitors like omeprazole, and those can decrease your ability to even, even absorb iron through the stomach. Yeah, one thing I'd add, I think vitamin C can sometimes help with yes. the absorption of iron. And I often tell patients there is an over-the-counter iron supplement called Vitron, V-I-T-R-O-N-C, that has vitamin C and iron combined. Um, so that's a really nice, if somebody wants to try some over the counter, that, that'd be what I'd recommend. And I often have patients just do it every other day because the iron pills can be hard on the stomach. So every other day seems to work fine for them. And they can cause constipation. Yes. Mm -hmm. So then you might need a stool softener yes. and so on. Yeah. Uh, this person says, ooh, I've been told I have hyperaldosteronism. How do they confirm that? You want to tackle that, Laura? So, I mean, you can confirm it oftentimes yeah. through blood testing. I would say it's an extremely common cause of high blood pressure. And a lot of times we don't do really some initial testing for that because, you know, high blood pressure is treated as high blood pressure. But if you are diagnosed with hyperaldosteronism, there's sometimes some electrolyte things that we're seeing that are different from a general population. And we do know there's specific medications like spironolactone, for example, that may be a bit more effective in, in treating the high blood pressure. What, what is it then? So there's a lot of chatter out there right now about cortisol, aldosterone levels, things like that. These all fall under endocrine, uh, hormonal pituitary, adrenal gland disorders. That is a very complex subject. So I often work closely with our endocrinologists if patients do have these things because we have to do a lot of urine tests. Sometimes it's salivary tests. Sometimes they have to be at a, late at night, early in the morning. So this is very complex. Um, so I do get a lot of questions about this. Often people can have other things that cause symptoms like fatigue, weight fluctuations, things like that. But those are the symptoms people often come with and they, you know, they search online and, and this is one of the things that comes up. So I, I am seeing a lot of questions about it, but the number of cases of this out there is rare, but this patient has been diagnosed with it. Sure. Uh, this per caller asked, how long does it take for skin to heal after being burned by scalding hot water? Will it ever look normal again? What, what do you recommend for, for burns and the, and the recovery? Yeah, so burn, the location matters. So if you have a burn, especially if it's located like on your hands, feet, genitalia, those really need to be evaluated by a physician right away because those burns, especially if they're deep, sometimes require extensive grafting and really involvement of a burn specialist. Some burns in other locations can sometimes be managed with just wound care, basic wound care, whether that be topical antibacterial ointments, sometimes dressings that don't stick to the skin and that type of thing. But a lot of the treatment does kind of depend on the size of the burn, the depth of the burn, and your underlying medical problems. Um, she, they had questions about it looking normal again. How how can you tell yeah. if, if maybe it might cause more scarring or not? I think I'll broaden this question just to help other people as well, because um, I get this question a lot after surgery too, and somebody has a surgical scar, will it ever look normal? It takes a really long time. You know, I tell patients sometimes to wait up until a year until we, you know, dis decide to do any cosmetic intervention, anything like that. They may always have a scar. Now, they should be seen right away after the burn, like Dr. Hofer said, if, if it's on the hand, anywhere high risk, we really wanna know that right away, because sometimes we will do some debridements and stuff right away, but often we just wait six to 12 months, and then at that point, if we still are concerned about its appearance, we talk to dermatology, plastics, someone like that. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a game of patience, unfortunately, with a lot of these things, because they can often improve, maybe not to 100%, but pretty dramatically on their own. You know, I might add with scars and with burns, um, especially to help with scarring, sometimes we recommend a, a cream or an ointment. Um, and, and with burns, sometimes we want to keep those moist. 
Um, any particular recommendations on what to use? So with all of my, you know, I do a lot of skin stuff in clinic. With all of my skin scars, wounds, post-surgical wounds, I really like plain old Vaseline. Uh, very few people have skin reactions to that. It heals the skin dramatically well compared to a lot of other things out there. Um, most people have it in their household. So most patients after any surgery, I just have them start Vaseline daily. Uh, and it does pretty darn well at helping that skin expedite healing. Now certain burns, based on the degree, will probably give you some other creams to use and, and that's kind of a complex topic for this. But if you just want a single answer, that'd be the one thing, Vaseline, Aquaphor, petroleum jelly, something like that. And I do also work in an emergency room where we kind of manage sometimes more complicated burns with the assistance of Regions Burn Center. And I, you know, I get a lot of questions from patients about I need some silvadine cream. That was kind of the old cream we used to use. I would say that's kind of gone away where you, they're recommending more of like the bacitracin, kind of an antibacterial ointment, which also does that. It keeps the wound bed moist, kind of like the Vaseline does, but certainly you don't need to go that aggressive for many wounds and, and healing areas. Yeah, very good. A caller from Sioux Falls is wondering if having O negative blood type provides more protection from COVID-19. Um, he would also like to make sure people know um, that O negative blood type is the universal blood donor, and that is a good point. That's the big thing with O negative blood type, which I'm O negative blood type, so yes, we are universal donors, which is great. We should just put a plug in for blood donation. The hospitals in South Dakota all have blood donation programs and we are always in need of more donors so if anybody who's watching this can we we always appreciate that and it's it's a really big need actually no matter the blood type no matter the blood type but especially if you're o negative <laughs> yeah because <laughs> we can use your blood for anybody um now as far as the COVID question yes there were a lot of questions like this during the pandemic and they still are out there of course i haven't seen any studies that prove various levels of protection, you know, I don't think it would change anything we'd do in terms of vaccines, treatments, things like that. So I wouldn't hang my hat on having O negative blood type and being fine from infectious diseases. Um, but we certainly saw a lot of questions and they were thought provoking questions, but I haven't seen anything uh, to make me give a different recommendation than I would somebody who's O positive or, or another blood type. Yeah, I, I would agree. Okay. Yeah, I remember early on we were looking into mm -hmm pulling at straws to see what could help and what were we seeing, but yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, this caller from Rapid City is wondering if there's a medication that can prevent memory loss before getting dementia. It's a common common concern, common question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we there's really, even for actual dementia, there's not a lot of great medications that can even kind of decrease that from kind of progressing. So one thing we know about brain health, and there's a lot more discussions about brain health, is the importance of keeping your brain active. And realistically, the things that are good for our general health are good for our brain health. So getting that exercise, getting that 150 minutes a, a week in a moderate intensity exercise, keeping yourself active socially, um, kind of doing those brain exercises, playing cards with your friends, we know those things help. Our diet makes a huge difference. So are we eating a lot of whole food? Foods, uh, keeping our nutrition up, are we eating a lot of highly processed foods? We know that that is bad for brain health. So for people who are really focused on this, I think the biggest take home is focus on your general health. That's going to be what's best for your brain in the end. I would agree. I get a lot of questions about supplements, various things like that. They just have not been shown to work to the level we would hope they would. Maybe someday that will change. I hope I hope it does. I hope someday we have a far better prevention for dementia because it is a terrible disease. We all probably know somebody with it. And if you have a family history, I understand, can understand how it's even more terrifying. But like Dr. Hofert said, 
I've listened to numerous experts on dementia, and still the best thing at the end of the day we have are the things that are good for general health to prevent dementia, things like aerobic exercise, dietary measures, uh, social connections, all those things that sound basic and, and uh, maybe a little disappointing that we don't have anything more than that, but they are actually quite powerful tools at either preventing or slowing uh, this disease down. Absolutely. It is a long journey to become a doctor that involves more than just memorizing information from books. One clinic in Sioux Falls is helping medical students get real-world experience prior to graduation. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower talked to one medical student about the Coyote Clinic. Sydney Borman is a fourth-year medical student out of the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine who helps operate Coyote Clinic. Coyote Clinic is a student-run clinic that provides free health care to the uninsured of the greater Sioux Falls community, and we're located in downtown Sioux Falls. While being overseen by a physician, the student-run clinic helps with many patients' needs. Coyote Clinic offers many services, including internal medicine clinic, acute care appointments, walk-in appointments, and we also offer sports physicals for youth in the Sioux Falls community. Starting in 2006, Coyote Clinic runs every Tuesday night from 5.30 to 7. Borman says it's a partnership between upper and underclassmen as the first and second year students are encouraged to work on the history and physical examination of the patient before discussing their findings. So they'll go in and see the patient, come out and discuss with the senior medical student kind of what they think, what they found on exam, and they'll present to the supervising physician and they'll all go back in together and discuss with the patient what really the assessment and plan is moving forward. Coyote Clinic is a volunteer program that is outside clinicals and coursework. Many students take the opportunity to help, and Borman says the clinic has since expanded, adding more volunteers. And we've since expanded where we actually have nursing student volunteers as well as pre-medical undergraduate students. So our clinic is continuing to expand and really develop those partnerships with other health services within our community. Borman says all medical students get an opportunity to not only obtain experience with helping patients, but also to understand barriers that people in the community face. And I think when we have early an early opportunity to see some of these social factors, it, it not only makes us more aware as medical students, but really something that we'll bring into our future practice when treating these patients in the future. Borman says helping with Coyote Clinic since her first year has helped her prepare for the challenges and benefits of working in the medical field. I think it helps medical students not only learn early on how to take care of patients, but also learning how a clinic runs on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's definitely something that I'll bring into my future practice as well. What a great program, what a great clinic, and what a great student. Sydney was just with me a couple weeks ago, and she's amazing, and it'll, she's in her fourth year and last year at medical school, and is gonna be matching next month, so good luck to Sydney and her, her plans. Uh, we've got a bunch of questions again. You guys are doing awesome, jumping from all different things, so true primary care docs here. I love it. Uh, this caller from Sioux Falls, how to treat bursitis in the knee if it persists after the cortisone shot? Yeah, so this can be frustrating because we love the cortisone shots and they're easy. We probably all do them in our clinic every day. 
Um, and they often can work, but if they don't, um, this can be a really tough thing. So I want to put a plug in for physical therapy. There's a lot physical therapy can do, I think, that people don't realize. And so I would, I would work with them if this patient hasn't already. And if that's still not working, then I probably would see someone from orthopedics or sports medicine at that point. As sometimes they can try a few different other things short of surgery, whatnot. Um, there's also just a lot of things at home I recommend, whether it's a compression sleeve, Volterra and gel is over the counter. I know ice sounds simple, but it actually goes a long ways with bursitis. Uh, but I would do all those things in conjunction with physical therapy if this patient hasn't. Yeah. yeah. And make sure not to be putting pressure on the bursa. Mm -hmm. So spending a lot of time kneeling down without any mm -hmm. knee protection, all of that pressure is very traumatic for the bursa and is just going to cause this problem to be very recurrent. And unfortunately, it is a, tends to be a chronic issue. Absolutely. This caller asks, what is neuropathy? What are its causes? And are there cures or treatment? And I'll put a plug in here. We not too long ago did a neuropathy show. So if you, if you find that on, on our uh, website or on YouTube, on Prairie Doc, uh, there's a show about it. But who wants to talk about neuropathy? We both see it a lot, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, very common <laughs> yeah. diagnosis in primary care, most definitely, yeah. Ben? So uh, there's a, a lot of causes of neuropathy, and sometimes we also don't find a cause of neuropathy, but how I would describe it is numbness, tingling of the hands, feet, extremities. The main causes I could think of that would come to mind, diabetes is a big one. Um, also, we see it a lot in the hands with carpal tunnel, uh, and then a lot of musculoskeletal causes whether it's spinal issues, neck issues, things like that. We often do a nerve test called an EMG um, to see if we can figure out what's causing it. But most of this you can go to your primary care physician for and start the workup for, and hopefully we can find causes, reverse them. Um, but neuropathy affects a lot of people. You hear a lot about it on TV, things like that. Um, and so, so I'd really recommend discussing it with a physician because it's such a broad topic that it needs to be explored and worked up um, to see if there are underlying causes and then discuss treatments as well. And sometimes we don't find a cause. Yeah. What are some of the treatments we can do, Laura? Yeah, so the biggest thing with neuropathy, I tell people that the, the numbness per se is potentially not reversible. But what we want to do is help people who have pain. That burning pain, especially in the legs, is the most common location. That's what we can really treat with the medications that we have available. So we'll use a lot of nerve pain medications for this, gabapentin, Lyrica are a couple of examples, and even antidepressants like Cymbalta or Duloxetine are great for nerve pain. But we really do want to, if we can, find an underlying cause, because if it's diabetes, for example, and we aren't treating the diabetes, we're going to have pretty rapid progression of that neuropathy, and it can become very difficult to treat. Another common cause I've seen is heavy alcohol use uh, can also affect the nerves as well. Yeah, there's some nutritional mm -hmm. deficiencies. We might want to do some blood work and chemotherapy for cancer. The mm -hmm. list goes on and Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this person has calcifications of the calcifications of the spine, and what causes this? And is there treatment, Ben? Yeah. So sometimes we find these things just incidentally. We say on imaging, you know, maybe somebody came in with back pain or or abdominal pain or something like that. And we got some sort of imaging and saw this. Probably the most common cause is arthritis. Uh, and, and sometimes people shrug arthritis off, but actually there's, there's a lot we can do for it. I'm gonna go back to physical therapy again, because that's probably the best treatment we have for this. Motion uh, is the lotion, as Dr. Holm used to always say. Mm -hmm. And that will forever be true. Uh, and, and even a couple physical therapy visits, it's pretty impressive how much improved activity levels, motion, things like that I can get from my patients, but also their pain levels and discomfort often go down and they're not having to take pills every day or do dramatic treatments. So that's probably the biggest one that would cause this. 
I, someone explained recently, or I can't remember how, but I hadn't really thought of it that way, but one way that movement can help is, you know, there's no blood vessels going into the joints. Mm -hmm. And so, so sometimes that movement helps get some of those mm -hmm. um, nutrients into the joint to help with healing and help it, help it go better. Uh, this person asks, what causes feet to, and, or your knees to get hot and get a rash? So I mean, I guess when things get hot or they get a rash, what are some, some possible causes there, do you think? Yeah, so, um, a lot, so heat can be a vasodilating effect. So sometimes that can cause either just redness or heat to the skin, or sometimes it, it can actually even cause hives. So there are different things that we know are more vasoactive, whether that be food, sometimes vibrations, sometimes medications, and certainly heat is on that list as well. So for people who are more prone to hives or are kind of in an outbreak, sometimes we'll say, you know, lukewarm showers, that type of thing, because though that high heat can precipitate that vasodilation or that dilating of those blood vessels toward the skin. Yeah, one thing I'm thinking of is uh, maybe even in the summer when people have been hot more, sometimes we'll see more tinea, some rashes of a, like a fungal infection because they like moist environments. Mm -hmm. And that heat and that moisture can sometimes cause a fungal infection or a ringworm. So, yeah. Uh, this person says, I get really bad leg cramps at night. Why do they occur and what can I do about it? This is a great question because we hear about this a lot from patients and I think patients probably live with this for a long time before they feel like they should ask us about it. But actually it can really disrupt them and it can, if their legs are moving during the night, can disrupt their, their bed mate as well. Um, and so we'll go back to iron. That is actually a very common cause of, of leg cramps, restless leg syndrome, things like that. So we actually check iron right away. Sometimes there's some other neurologic syndrome like a neuropathy, whatnot. Other times it's electrolyte deficiencies. Um, and so some basic labs can go a long ways with this. And, and often we can try some things to, to reverse the cause. I look at hydration and things as well, but of course you don't wanna be drinking a lot of water before you go to bed, so then you're up all night urinating. So some of those things can be tough, but, but this is something you should probably discuss with your physician because usually we can find a cause to reverse for this. Yeah, and I also see, describe it to people as like a muscle shortening phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So a really powerful tool is just stretching. Yeah. If you can stretch those legs out for five to 10 minutes prior to going to bed, really get those calf muscles lengthened out, you're less likely to have that cramping. And sometimes you can get by without medication, without taking a lot of the supplements just by stretching those muscles out because over time our muscles get shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah, sometimes I've had patients find that, um, you know, it's important, I recommend stretching and I recommend staying hydrated. Sometimes maybe an electrolyte containing uh, solution or pickle juice. I mean, so, you know, there's all those old things works. that sometimes yeah. people find helpful. Uh, and, and uh, but, but getting it checked out mm -hmm. is, a, is a good idea. What is an SI belt? So I'm guessing we're talking about sacroiliac pain and a belt that you can wear. I haven't dealt too much with that, but have you guys? I can't say I prescribed one specifically, uh, but it, yeah, it sounds like it would be basically a belt that you would kind of support those SI joints with. So SI joints are really tough because um, it's a very compact area on our back, um, sort of on each side of the spine, but people do commonly get arthritis in them. There are a lot of over-the-counter cares we can do for them. Sometimes the belts help, but other times the belts will constrict you. So if people want to use a belt for their back, things like that, I often caution them. Sometimes I see them do more harm than good. So I, I don't have them run out and do those necessarily right away. Sometimes I will also have people do steroid injections yeah. of their SI joints because I've had a lot of success with that. And sometimes it's one and done and we're good or they just do them a few times a year and we're, we're much better. Um, so this is something I would discuss, but 
the belt may help, but it can also do harm, so I don't always have patients use it. Yeah, I would completely agree that sometimes you're actually weakening those mm -hmm. muscles around mm -hmm. the area by using the belts, especially for low back pain. I think working on strengthening may provide you better mm -hmm. long-term relief. Back to physical therapy again. Caller from Brookings, what is folliculitis? What causes it and how can it be cured? Thoughts on that, Laura? So, folliculitis uh, can be, I guess, happen in any area of the body. Uh, oftentimes, we see that um, in you know where your hair naturally grows. But sometimes, like if you get it into a hot tub that maybe has a little bit of bacteria in it, it can kind of cover your entire body. A lot of times, folliculitis, like especially the hot tub example I gave, is self-limiting. So we would just let that go away on its own. But sometimes people get folliculitis, for example, in the groin area or the underarm area, that it can be related to repetitive trauma. So sometimes shaving, especially shaving with multiple blades on a razor, can really irritate the skin. So sometimes just trying to scale back from that can reduce the risk of it. Uh, same thing with facial hair, uh, is that, that that shaving can be really irritating to it. We really try to avoid a lot of antibiotics for folliculitis because of the risk of drug-resistant infections, and oftentimes it's more of an inflammatory issue than a true bacterial issue. I think there's a good chance to talk about MRSA, you know, methicillin-resistant staph aureus. I, rem I know I'm seeing a lot more than I did 10 years ago. I don't know if you I'm guys... I'm seeing it in kids, which is a little terrifying. Um, but and, yes. and what is it? What do you see yes. when you're seeing so it? So we should describe MRSA. This is a type of staph infection. This is just what MRSA is uh, for the basics of it. It's a type of staph, staph infection that does not respond to a lot of antibiotics. There's a lot of antibiotic resistance with it. And why it scares all of us, we're probably all sitting here cringing on the inside thinking about it, is because things like this are limiting our options. You know, there are people who come in where we are very limited on what antibiotics can work for a staph infection if they have MRSA. Because they've grown resistant. Yes, over because time. Because of being treated with antibiotics for ear infections yes. or whatever else, and now we killed off normal bacteria. And we, we have staph on our skin normally, mm -hmm. but now we've created this resistance strain. Mm -hmm. And so this is why when we, you know, see you for your upper respiratory cold, you know, we're not trying to be mean sometimes when we say no, we think we're very confident this is viral, you don't need antibiotics. We really are trying to be judicious with our antibiotic use um, because we aren't really making new antibiotic types, you know, the, the antibiotics we have have been around for a long time. And so every time you take a Z-Pak or penicillin or whatnot, um, you're putting it, your body at risk of a little more resistance. Of course, there are absolutely times we need antibiotics. Um, but we want to limit them and be judicious with them, you know, not a longer course than necessary, things like that, um, to, to help limit the resistance that's going on. But yes, we're seeing a lot of this amongst people who carry MRSA and then get skin infections that are semi-antibiotic resistant. And harder to treat. Mm -hmm. I, along those lines, we, I've also seen more C. diff colitis. And, and what is that? So that is a type of diarrhea that we do need to treat with antibiotics, but it's oftentimes caused by antibiotics. And we are seeing a lot more of that with the antibiotic prescribing, and I've seen a lot more of that in kids, unfortunately, as well. And it can be devastating. So sometimes it doesn't actually respond to antibiotics, and we even have to do things like fecal transplants down the road. Uh, and sometimes we are talking months of potentially debilitating diarrhea and abdominal pain related to this uh, bowel infection. One, so, go ahead. one thing I do to help a little bit combat, combat C. diff is sometimes if patients are on a longer course of antibiotics, I have them take a probiotic with it. That can help maintain your gut bacteria is to help prevent it. Now, I don't use probiotics for a lot of other things beyond that. A lot of patients do, which is fine. 
Um, but C. diff is one area where I do see probiotics being helpful. So if you are on antibiotics often or a longer course, it'd be a really wise idea to go pick one up. And I usually have patients continue the probiotic for a week after the antibiotic is complete. That's exactly what I wanted mm -hmm. to add. Yes. There are many types of therapy, both for our physical and mental health. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer traveled to Sioux Falls to learn more about horsepower and the work they do with hippotherapy. Eric Hartel is the executive director of Horsepower, which is a facility near Sioux Falls that offers therapeutic help and horses. We provide horse-assisted therapeutic services for people with cognitive, physical, emotional, or sensory needs. And um, basically what that means is we use horses to help heal and empower people. Horsepower owns 10 horses and they help people by providing hippotherapy, which is occupational therapy with help from a horse. So you can be on the horse, you can be stretching, you can be reaching, you know, you can be using your, your muscles in a different way than maybe you wouldn't be able to do in a traditional clinical setting. Hartel says doctors and therapists keep horsepower in mind as an alternate service for patients who range from two years old to 80 years old. Clients sign up for eight-week sessions and meet once per week, depending on what help they need. If it is physical, you know, then we can work with them on stretching and work with strengthening certain muscles that they need to work on. But it could also be sensory if it's just being around the animal and feeling their gentle nature and those sorts of things. Horsepower implements safety practices for its clients with the use of a platform and lift to get the riders on and off their horses. Hartel says Horsepower uses every precaution possible and says they rely on volunteers to help the riders and horses. That's one of the reasons why we, we need so many volunteers because they be there are around the horse to help support that rider so they're never alone um, if they need that support and so, um, so we take every precaution and safety. Hartel ends by saying horses can look intimidating but overcoming that fear and starting to ride one is the best therapy they can offer. This is a gentle animal, but it is huge, right? You know, overcoming that is sometimes, you know, a triumph for, for people, right? Good job. What a great program. I'm glad that there's options out there that, you know, it, just a way to connect with people. And, and it's amazing how connecting with animals can be helpful. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that in your medical career or been involved, but uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of different ways to help people and, and, and that, that's wonderful. We've got a lot of questions here. And so um, this caller from Rapid City recently had an epileptic seizure and had a lot of energy following the seizure. He's wondering if the seizure could have caused the increase in energy. What, what are your thoughts on that, Laura? Um, it would be certainly atypical uh, to have an increased level of energy after seizure. Most of the time we see people kind of in a state of sleepiness. And I guess the question I would have is, you know, at what time frame you're talking, but certainly most epileptic seizures, we're going to see what we call a postictal period where, you know, your loved one might seem like they're barely awake or unarousable, even kind of have different style of breathing would be the most typical thing that we would see. So um, I've, I've not heard of necessarily increased energy after a seizure. I don't know if you have been. No, 
if, if I hear that, I actually question if it was something similar to a seizure, which there are many things right. that can happen to people that look like a seizure. So I just had one of these patients come in this week, similar description, had never had a seizure before. We actually found out they had something similar to a seizure, but not exactly a seizure. Um, through our workup. So whoever, you know, I'd, I'd encourage this patient to, to discuss this with either their neurologist or primary care team because it could have been a seizure, but I'd actually question if it was something other than. What are some things that sometimes get confused with seizures? Probably the most common thing is, you know, uh, somebody who gets hot, overheated, or, or just passes out for some reason and just has a syncopal episode, as we call it, where they're out maybe for a few seconds, but they kind of wake up and quickly return back to their baseline, you know, mental, physical status. Sometimes their eyes can roll back, things like that. Uh, that looks terrifying to people, and I totally get it. But often those things are not true full seizures and, and just more of what we call a syncopal episode. Yeah, and especially if someone's never had a seizure before, if, if there's a question, go get medical advice yes. and get, help get it figured out. Uh, this caller from Watertown is wondering about orthostatic hypotension causes and treatment. Yeah, so very common condition. Um, and the first thing I always look at when people come in with this is, you know, how many blood pressure pills are they potentially on? Because sometimes we're trying to treat blood pressure to get it to goal to protect our other organs, but those medications can also cause your blood pressure to drop. Now, what we know about orthostasis is that it's a problem of gravity. So when we stand up or when we get up from a laying down position, gravity is kind of pulling our blood away from the brain, which makes us feel lightheaded and sometimes even pass out or have this syncope like Ben mentioned. Um, things that we know help is, especially if you're young and don't have a reason not to, increasing your salt intake in your diet, making sure you're getting plenty of water. I tell people three liters a day of liquid. And for some people, even compression can be a helpful treatment just to help so that blood isn't pooling in the lower extremity and can make it back to the brain quicker. As we get older, it can be more common to have some orthostatic or orthostasis where your blood pressure goes lower when you stand up. So getting up more slowly and the compression socks, stuff like that, absolutely. Uh, this caller asks about runny nose with clear mucus for the last couple months. When the caller leans over, it pours out like water. There's something to be concerned about. Any remedies to fix this? What do you recommend for those runny noses? There are a lot of people who struggle with this, and I'm not sure why, but this year seems to have been a worse year, so this person is not alone at all. There's a, two things that I recommend to these types of patients every day. Uh, one are the saline rinses of the nose, like the neti pot, the Neil Med. They actually do work quite well. Uh, a lot of ear, nose, and throat physicians recommend that. And then the second thing I often recommend is Flonase, the nasal spray over-the-counter. It's cheap, it's easy. Most of my patients, if they can do those two things every day, it actually can keep most of this at bay. Now, of course, you start getting fevers or it's getting worse, things like that, then, then go in and you could have an infection and maybe need antibiotics. But for most of these things, over-the-counter stuff works quite well. Now, it's winter right now, but in the fall, spring, I would think about allergy medications as well. A lot of patients come in asking about allergy pills, but most of the stuff that we use is actually the over-the-counter treatments for that, which go a long ways. So most of this you can probably do on your own. You just gotta have the right stuff and use it. Yeah, and there's a couple other prescription nasal sprays that sometimes mm -hmm. it can be helpful, but yeah. And, and, and worth looking into, is there something that you're allergic to in your environment? I've had some patients that they finally changed their old pillow and then they were okay. You know, So there could be something in your home or that you're around and they go on vacation, they're okay. So it's like, then you know that there's something something there. Or have their ducts cleaned out in their home, mm -hmm. if they, especially if they have an older home. Uh, this caller asks, what is the difference between influenza A and B? Do you think the spread of the flu is worse this year? I think we already said yes. 
to that. What is the difference between A and B, though? That's a good question. So they are technically different strains of the virus. And I would say, in general, influenza A tends to be a lot of your respiratory headache, body aches, fever, chill, sinus. With B, I do see a bit more of the GI effects. I don't know if anyone else kind of yeah. notices that a little bit. Um, but in general, they're basically treated the same. Uh, and the you know we do recommend vaccination, like Ben mentioned. Um, but that's generally what I see as far as the differences. They're very similar. Absolutely. Oftentimes, you know, difference between influenza and COVID is influenza can hit you like a truck, mm -hmm. whereas COVID sometimes it build, builds more. Uh, was told once that I should begin taking more vitamin D as I get older. How much extra do we need as we get older, women specifically? Yeah, so vitamin D is probably more important for our population watching this because while it has been a very nice winter, I tell every patient if I check your vitamin D level, it's probably going to be low. We just all live in the upper Midwest. It's just the nature of being up here. Uh, and so most patients, I just recommend a daily multivitamin with D in it. However, women who are higher risk for osteoporosis, uh, pretty much all women over 50, I recommend anywhere from 600 to 1,000 units of vitamin D daily. Um, same with calcium as well. Uh, more so for osteoporosis prevention than anything else. If you are curious, you can always get your labs checked. Most small clinics, hospitals throughout the state probably can run a vitamin D lab, but for most patients, I just have them start taking a multivitamin or, or if they're a female in a certain age group, I give them those recommendations for osteoporosis in terms of that level. Now, there are some patients, whether it's post-bariatric patients or absorption issues or, or other, other rarer cases where they need higher levels of vitamin D than that, but for most patients, the over-the-counter general recommendations will work fine. Yeah, and I do caution people that if you've not been told by your physician to take these very high doses of vitamin D, mm -hmm. you shouldn't. Because vitamin D, we can actually get toxic. It is a fat stored vitamin, which means that it can cause more harm. It's not one that we just pee out like the rest of the vitamins. So really it is important that if you're gonna be taking those higher doses, which I think you know certainly anything over 5,000 international units a day, you should be doing that under the guidance of your physician. Mm -hmm. You guys are so good. Cover, covering all the all the stuff, we all see the these stuff. things every day. Mm -hmm. I love it. We recently became grandparents. It would like to know ways to prevent SIDS. How do you pronounce pre prevent SIDS, Laura? So the biggest thing. And I what was, is it? Yes. So SIDS would be sudden infant death syndrome, uh, and it's not a well understood thing. We know that there are risk factors for it. So we talk to our you know our pregnant moms about trying to quit smoking, limiting secondhand smoke exposure. But a really big thing is safe sleep. So we do really recommend that uh, infants be in their own separate sleeping space, not sleeping in a bed or couch with another loved one, uh, because they can't, you know, if they get rolled onto, then that could potentially cause suffocation. And the other thing is they don't need pillows, they don't need blankets, they don't need stuffed animals. And those are just potential objects that they could potentially roll into and, and not be able to get out from. So safe sleep is probably the biggest way that you can help keep your new grandbaby safe. Yeah, and you know, one thing that, that's different than it used to be a couple generations ago is we want them on their back when they sleep mm -hmm. and not on their tummy when they sleep. Now with this said, I often recommend tummy time while they're awake, so not always on their back, mm -hmm. but when they're sleeping, we want newborn babies on their back. Is Ozempic safe to use long-term? What other medication options are there if insurance will not pay for it, Ben? So this is the hot question right now across the country. Uh, weight loss meds have been around for a long time. However, a lot of the older ones either just worked really short term, you'd lose the weight, but then as soon as you stopped the medication, it would come back with a vengeance. <laughs> they had lots of side effects. 
Um, so there were a lot of issues with those. Ozempic, I think, is a game changer. Uh, I have put semaglutide. Semaglutide is the the generic ingredient name. Um, there's a couple other similar medications out there, Wegovi, Munjaro. Uh, these are all once a week injectables. So we started using these for diabetics a few years ago and found out the weight loss benefit. And now many non-diabetic patients are using them. For most patients, we think they're quite safe long-term. There are some GI side effects, stomach things we watch, but for most patients, we think they're long-term. The biggest issue is cost. These are new, they're not generic yet. Uh, so that is where we are really struggling for patients, and it, it breaks my heart because I think a lot of these patients would have tremendous health benefits if, if their insurance would cover them. We're just not there yet with most insurance plans, and I hope that changes, but I don't know if it'll be soon. There are things like coupon cards, uh, other resources I try to explore with patients, and sometimes I'm successful. Uh, but for the ones that do get on it, they do quite well. It really suppresses your appetite. Um, I see a lot of patients just their craving for carbs goes down. And then it really works best with the diet exercise changes as well. You can't just do this alone. By far and beyond my patients who have been successful with this, all made dramatic, dramatic lifestyle changes. Uh, and some of them were able to get off the medication and maintain their low weight uh, if they maintain their diet exercise patterns uh, without it. And so, so I'm very excited about it, but the cost pains us, pains the patients, and, and that's kind of the major barrier yeah. right now. And, and there isn't without risk. I mean, there's mm -hmm. cases where uh, someone, kind of their stomach is kind of paralyzed, because that's what it does. It slows mm -hmm. the gut, and then, and then and you're not as hungry as much. But you know, for those, for many, that it's not an option, and just the last minute here, um, what do you recommend for, for healthy diet and exercise and weight loss? Yeah, so I think as far as just going back to the basics, uh, definitely we know that tracking our intake has shown to be benefit because most of us do underestimate the amount of calories we take in during the day. So there are many free apps available to just kind of keep track of what you're eating. There's pretty good data out now for time-restricted eating, uh, if that's appropriate for you, depending on your other medical issues, which means you basically choose maybe an eight-hour time period during the day where you're going to consume your calories. Uh, and then for exercise, really, you know, 150 minutes a day is recommended by the American Heart Association, but I tell people strength training is key. I see a lot of people doing steady state cardio, walking, maybe getting on the elliptical, jogging, but our the bottom line is our muscle mass is declining, especially after age 35, and if we don't improve our muscle mass, we're going to notice our metabolism generally decline. Yeah, you know, every little bit helps. It all adds up. If you can get out, go for a walk. We can't blame the weather right now. Uh, probably the best winter we've had in quite a while. <laughs> and so getting out, getting active, and granted that, that doesn't work for everybody, but if you can find a way to be, uh, to be moving, and we know that's gonna help your joints, we know that's gonna help your mood, we know that uh, it's just gonna be uh, healthier. So thank you guys so much for, for joining us, and, and uh, uh, we've had some great discussion tonight. So excellent. The winner of our prize tonight is Caroline. Thank you, Caroline, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Searching for trusted medical information or looking for a doctor for your medical needs? Head to the Prairie Doc YouTube channel today to access previous On Call with the Prairie Doc episodes. And make sure to join us most Thursdays on SDPB or streaming on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. This is the beginning of a poem from 1624. 
In it, the poet John Donne appreciates how humans are all connected. Indeed, humans are social beings, and social connection is a factor in our health. We all know the importance of a healthy diet and exercise for our health. We are getting better at understanding the importance of mental health. One thing we do not discuss much, however, are the benefits of social connection. Our relationships with family, friends, people at work and in the community have a major impact on our health and well-being. Those who are socially connected and have stable and supportive relationships can more easily make healthy choices and have better mental and physical health outcomes. Social connections can help us cope with stress, anxiety, depression, and hard times. Rates of most any disease are lower for those that feel a high sense of community. This includes lower rates of heart disease, strokes, dementia, depression, and anxiety. Social connection with others can improve sleep, decrease your risk of death, and reduce your risk of violence and suicide. Similarly, marriage decreases your risk of disease. While you may not need to get married to have a lifelong partner, the benefits of a long-term relationship are well established. Marriage has been found to help with lower rates of cancer, dementia, and increases your chances of surviving a heart attack. Loneliness is becoming more rampant, even as cities grow larger and transportation faster. We seem to have everything right on our phones to keep us company. Somehow, despite all these advances in technology, or perhaps because of them, people can feel ever more isolated and alone. So how do we build community? How do we foster social connections? One way is to encourage face-to-face -face contact, to get people together. Schools, sporting events, churches, grocery stores, coffee shops, parks, Concerts, festivals, and more all help to build community. Civic organizations and volunteering can help foster social connections and help us find meaning and purpose. You can improve your social connections right now. You could call someone. You could consider going to a local basketball game, visiting someone alone in their home, or seek out a volunteer opportunity. When you increase your sense of social connection and community, you can improve your health. When you brighten up someone else's day, you often brighten your own. John Donne's famous poem, No Man is an Island, ends with a warning. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Thank you so much to Dr. Ben Meyerink and Dr. Laura Hofert for volunteering their time to help us to answer your questions. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. play a critical role in our body as they help us breathe and deliver oxygen to our cells. However, respiratory issues can arise. Helping the world to breathe, pulmonary medicine, next time on call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, my name is Dave Hank, and I've been a board member at Healing Words Foundation for the last nine years. Well, my background goes all the way back to DeSmet, South Dakota, uh, where Rick Holm and I were childhood friends. We are at USD together, and uh, we've managed to stay close friends for our entire lives. And I spent the bulk of my career with Weyerhaeuser Company in the Pacific Northwest, and I led their production forestry research group. Uh, I also spent time on the faculties of Auburn, Virginia Tech, Purdue, and affiliate faculty positions at University of Washington, University of Idaho. And in retirement, I've spent most of my time in the nonprofit world in board service. When Rick and Joni were putting the foundation together several years ago, Rick I would call and ask a question or two, and I usually had the answer or at least where he could go. And, and so eventually, he and Joni invited me to be a member of the Healing Words Foundation board, and that's how it happened. The foundation and the Prairie Doc Media production is really committed to truthful, timely, tested medical information. And there's a lot of information out there now that's uh, either half truth or no truth. And of course, being a scientist by profession, we're always seekers of truth, understanding full well that the truth can change with additional research. Every dollar that's pledged or given to Healing Words Foundation unleashes an army of volunteers. The foundation and the Prairie Doc Media puts out really good stuff, very useful things. So there's a high return on the investment to invest in the Prairie Doc. For more information or to donate, head to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, Possibility. Hello Healthy, Hello Life. Avera, moving health forward. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Ophthalmology Limited, Avera Medical Group Brookings, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Monument Health, 
Dakota Dermatology, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yenton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, South Dakota American College of Physicians, Cool Beans Coffee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, and Swiftel Communications.